Hi, I'm Dr. Gil Wilshire. I'm a board-certified physician, surgeon, and reproductive endocrinologist. Welcome to my series of podcasts where we discuss medical matters that matter to you. Welcome to the Dr. Gill Show. This is where we talk about medical matters that matter to you. Today, our guest is Dr. John Miles. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Dr. Gill. So let's talk about back health in general. Let's say I'm a young, healthy adult. Is, is there anything we can do to keep our backs healthy? For example, talk to me a little bit about beds and mattresses. I'd like to talk about basic activities one can do. And maybe we can talk about basic exercises one can do to keep, to keep one's back healthy. Well, if we're talking about the low back, there's, there's a lot that can be done. Um, at the top of the list is probably just to uh, maintain a physiologic weight is, is big. Uh, but we, we talk all day in clinic about core strength, which is the belly and the back muscles. And the stronger that a patient can make their core muscles, they're going to hurt less and be able to do more. And contrary to popular belief, we, we almost never operate on people for back pain. Uh, we operate for people that may have back pain, but they also have buttock and leg pain, typically with numbness, tingling, weakness. Uh, uh, I, was, I wanted you to get into that, uh, the signs of a, of a back problem. But sticking, sticking with overall health, so we want to keep a, keep a normal weight if we can and have a strong core. Are there any kind of activities? I bet you tennis was good for your core. Tennis is good for people. Um, uh, you know, as we get older, some of these things are tougher to do. I'm a big proponent of water aerobics for a lot of senior people. Ah. It's, uh, it's kind of a perfect exercise medium. You're buoyant in water, so it unloads all your joints, and yet uh, every movement is resisted by the water. So it, a, a great uh, resource if it's available. A lot of the smaller towns in Missouri don't have that resource. Columbia, we do. Several options here locally. Is swimming in general maybe good for your core? Great. It's really hard to get people to swim. A lot of people don't swim. Okay. So uh, the default is water aerobics, because I think you get really the same benefit. All right. Um, when I was having some back pain issues that, in fact, were not surgically related, they, weren't, they were musculoskeletal, you gave me a bunch of uh, exercises, and I did read them. I have found that... Uh, working on the floor, doing basic stretches, whether they're yoga-related or Feldenkrais-related or uh, PT, Alexander-related. There's all kinds of... It, I find if I go to the gym and I go to the floor, almost everybody's doing the same kind of combination of back I, I don't things. think there's a magic uh, combination. Uh, just do something. And, uh, you know, if you spent five minutes a day doing some type of basic core work and some stretching, which is also important, it's going to pay dividends. It'll sure. pay dividends. So just keep your core strong. Uh, I'm enjoying the stretches I'm doing, and I'm also enjoying the roller. I'm finding the roller pops me in is almost as good as a chiropractor or massage therapist. Yeah. So, so taking a little responsibility for one's back probably pays dividends later in life. And a good chiropractor can certainly make you feel better. And uh, patients routinely ask that question, how I feel about chiropractors. Well, I, I can't trash them because my mother is one. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Even my mother's one. I love it. Some of my best friends are chiropractors. And uh, my standard line is, if a chiropractor can fix you, you don't need me, which is true. Beautiful. I love yeah. it. I love it. It's like people need to realize as surgeons, we only want to work on people we can help. 
We have zero. As long as we're busy, busy surgeons like you and me, if we don't need to operate, we don't want to do it. We want to make sure we can fix it and Absolutely. make it better and have, have a good, and have a good shot at it. Yeah, I think people need to realize that um, we don't want to do unnecessary. Nobody, well, nobody that I know wants to do unnecessary surgery. So, all right, how about mattresses? I mentioned mattresses. Any thought on firm or soft or water or? Or, or air pressure, or springs, or foam. I see all these ads on TV, John. I don't really have a strong feeling about it. I think whatever works for you. Um, people probably hang on to mattresses a little bit too long, and they get worn out. Mm -hmm. But it seems like most of the modern mattresses have a little bit of a memory foam topper, which is fine. Uh, I don't think there's a, uh, and certainly our academy has not come out with any official recommendations. Ah. I guess if there were data, they'd, they'd say something. They'd say something about it. Interesting, interesting. So, that's a good segue. I don't think you or I are pain-treating doctors. But we, we have people that come to us with painful conditions that, that are symptoms of an underlying problem. And if you fix the underlying problem, generally you can improve the pain. So, pain isn't necessarily the goal. It's more of the, the symptoms. So... If a person, I want to know when should a person seek out an orthopod or or an orthopedic surgeon? Uh, what types of back pain would would should should one be concerned about? Well, the things that we typically operate upon are uh, in the low back. It's uh, buttock and leg pain, typically associated with numbness, tingling, or weakness, but perhaps not. But Any particular part of the leg, the front or the back or it the depends inside? On, it depends on the level of the lumbar lesion. It's not a, the patient doesn't need to be concerned about that. But okay. uh, one of the standard rules of thumb is that if a patient has groin pain, it's typically from the hip joint, ah. whereas pain in the buttock is generally from the back. It's not 100% true, but probably 90% true. So frequently, the uh, hip surgeons and the back surgeons toss patients back and forth. And likewise, the shoulder surgeons and the spine guys toss patients back and forth. Because in the cervical spine, the analogous... That's the neck. The, the, the neck. The analogous complaint would be shoulder and arm pain. Uh, frequently, the pain... And there's some differences, but... Um, and there's a lot of overlap. A lot of patients that have rotator cuff pathology or joint pathology also have cervical spondylosis or arthritic conditions, and these symptoms can overlap, and sometimes they're difficult even for practitioners to sort it out, gotcha. which, which one is the predominant complaint. Yeah, that happened to me. What it was ended up being my rotator cuff that Pat Smith took care of was showing up as neck issues. We kind of had to go through the neck thing and say, well, the pain was coming from here, so... It can be tricky. It's not obvious. It's not always obvious. Yeah. No. So in the neck, the things that we operate on are typically shoulder pain. And uh, some, some people have the full-blown classic symptoms of pain that radiates all the way to the hand. And there's different, what we call dermatomal distributions, where the pain radiates associated with different nerve roots in the cervical spine. But not everybody read the textbook. So there is a a little bit of a constellation of symptoms that we might see. Do any do any stories come to mind? Or so it's something really crazy, you thought it was X and it was Y? Have you had any really uh, 
tricky uh, diagnostic uh, uh, puzzles that, 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 well, that come we, to mind? We do get some uh, tricky ones. I had one patient uh, that had an unusual presentation. Uh, she had some uh, symptoms in her knee, her thigh, and she was a lady in her 60s or 70s probably, and she was explaining to me that, that if her uh, husband rubbed her thigh in the proper way, that she would have an orgasm. That's uh, a good one. So we, she had the orgasmic knee, which kind of went down in uh, the annals of our best stories. Uh, as, I, you know, as I was talking to the lady, I... Started rubbing her knee. No, I, said, I said, is, is this the knee? She said, no, that is the <laughs> Don't knee. touch it. That's the knee. And her husband is sitting over there, and he didn't say a word. And, and she's a very talkative lady, and she says, is that it? Is that it? Is that it? And he just nodded his head. Yep, yeah, that was it. it. I said, well, I'm, I, I told her, I said, I'm not really sure what's going on with your knee, but I, I am real certain that it's not orthopedic. <laughs> and she seemed to be okay with that explanation. So. Oh, I love it. I love it. So, let's say you're a parent and your child, 10, 12, 14 years old, starts having some, some back pain. What's this? Uh, don't, I remember uh, going out for athletics. You'd have to go to the doctor and cough where they're looking for hernias. But aren't there actually programs to check for scoliosis, like in schools or pre-sports what's that all about john there are actually bob Gaines started that program in the state of missouri and it's a forward bend test where you're looking for um, a thoracic hump uh, when you bend a patient over that has scoliosis there's there's a rotational component to it and you'll see a uh, when you bend a patient over you'll see an asymmetry in their rib contour ah. and and there was a little simple tool to measure a scoliometer and measure the angle. And if it exceeded uh, a number, and I forgot the number, they would, the school nurse would send them to be evaluated. So even a nurse could see it? Yeah, any, any person could see it. And it's common enough that it warrants a general screening? So it's not something that would be painful, that would be brought to your attention? Very before. easy screening test. And then the idea was that the earlier you would catch these patients, you could brace them more effectively. Um, and potentially avoid surgery for some of them, um, rather than letting this curve advance, and then you'd have a tougher case to deal with surgically. I see. I see. So I'm looking at a, a word came up for in children of back uh, with back problems. It was called spondylolysis. 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 What so is that, that? That's something that that I do see frequently. Um, so in the peak growth years of a youngster. Um, which is typically puberty, uh, it is not uncommon to, for a patient to sustain a stress fracture, which is a, ah. which is a repetitive movement uh, problem. Not unlike if you took a paperclip and just worked it back and forth and back and forth, eventually the paperclip would fail. What part of the spine is fractures? It is the a body? No, it is a piece of bone that we call the pars interarticularis, which is the part between the articulations, which is the part between the facet joints. And this is a lumbar spine, so it's this is a cervical model. But okay. there is a little uh, piece of bone that's maybe 10 millimeters by or 15 millimeters by five millimeters thick huh. uh, at the most that 
uh, is in an anatomic tough spot. There's a shear stress that occurs uh, through this piece of bone, typically in the lower segments, most commonly at L5, some less likely at L4. The lower back. The very low back, right before the sacrum. And uh, the patient will develop this little stress fracture. It could be unilateral on one side or it could be bilateral. And eventually, because that functionally detaches the posterior elements or the facet joint, the inferior articular process is no longer attached to the vertebral body because of the fracture. Uh, a secondary condition develops called spondylolisthesis, mm. which is where the spine slides forward. So in orthopedics, we like Greek words, and the Greek word for spine is spondylos, and the Greek word for fall f- slip or fall forward is olisthenin. So we bluged these two words together and came up with spondylolisthesis which is a very common thing that we treat in spine surgery. And this is painful? It is painful almost always. Uh, frequently, the pain subsides, and the patient may go on for years without much pain. And then as the slippage progresses, they develop symptoms in adulthood, and we'll frequently see patients in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s who have been relatively uh, quiescent, with regard to their symptoms for perhaps decades. And then as the degenerative processes accumulate at that segment and the slip progresses, they become symptomatic later in life and we frequently operate on those patients. So this can start in the teen years and will a, 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 a child or a, a teen usually have enough pain to, I hate this word complain, complain folks is not, it's not fetching. <laughs> it's not fetching, it means, Gee, you, 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 no, you they, tell this somebody is, that this it is hurts. not. Yeah, this is not just the soreness from working out. This is a pain, right. pain. Yeah, this, this is, like, is not somebody just being malingering or no. trying to get out of school. This is a real pain. Real pain. And how how do you diagnose that in a teen? Well, when you're, uh, when you're fancy MRIs, uh, you can see it sometimes on MRI, particularly before the fracture actually uh, ah. occurs. You can see it when it's still a stress reaction. You can see it on CT. Um, Sometimes you can see it on plain film, particularly after the slip progresses. Difficult to see it before the slip progresses. If you've got a teen with back pain, would typically they'll go to their family doctor, their primary care doctor. The primary care doctors are very good about uh, ferreting this out and sending them to you? I think some are. And it's, it's one of those things that if the symptoms persist, um, these are frequently athletes. Okay. Um, and... It's usually the parents that are bringing them in because they've been there. They've been complaining to the parent, and and the kid frequently can't participate in their sporting endeavor, and that's what drives the train. And is the pain like in in their back? Pain is in the back, sometimes in the the buttock and thigh. The low back, buttock pain. Do not ignore it. Go to your primary care and see if they if it's referred to you. Right, if it's really stopping what you're doing and it's pain, pain, not just soreness. Yeah. Gotcha. And I assume there's spinal trauma that can occur any time in someone's life. Um, do you ever have to repair a back that's been injured in a car accident or something or an athletic injury? Well, we really, at, in private practice here, we don't deal with high-energy trauma, which would be uh, burst fractures or flexion distraction injuries. 
Those are really bad back breaks. You want to send those to a university with a multidisciplinary those, correct. team. Correct. Those tend to go to the university because they tend to be what we call level one trauma. These are high energy events. And it takes a big support team to take care of these people because they're gotcha. almost always have other injuries as well. Gotcha. Something I learned, I moved to Missouri almost 17 years ago and uh, I saw a person who had was in a motor vehicle event and had been injured. And I used a, a New Jersey term. I said, so ma'am, you were in an accident. She goes, no. I, go, I thought you were in a car accident. She goes, no, I was in a wreck. <laughs> I said, you know what? You're right. That was a wreck. That wasn't just a fender bender accident. So I now use the term wreck for that. Now I see the medical term is high energy event. I, I like that. I like that. So as we get older, our, uh, our, our backs get weaker. They start to degenerate. I know I've lost about an inch in height. I used to be six, two and a half. I'm just pushing a little over six, one. Now, the spine, it seems to be it's a stack. It's not coins because coins are thin, but it's a stack of these vertebra that I'm sure we're all aware of. And between each vertebra is a, a disc, a spongy, somewhat springy disc, right? And I guess as we get older, we lose some of that spring, and they, they, they just kind of shrink a little bit, right? They do. The, the disc has two parts. There's a tough outer ring called the annulus, which okay. is analogous to the wall of a tire and has fibrous strands in different orientations. And then the inner part of the disc is called the nucleus pulposus, which has a crab meaty um, texture. When we're very young, it's almost like uh, mucus. As we age, it becomes crab meaty. And then towards the end of life, it sort of goes away. It's just there's nothing there. Um, so the, the loss of height is related to two things. One is uh, the disc settle and you lose a little bit of height that way. The other is that the curvatures, the spine is an S-curve. There's a cervical lordosis and a thoracic kyphosis and a lumbar lordosis. And that S-curve uh, becomes more pronounced. Well, so there's more curvy, so there's a little shrinkage that way. As I you, see. As you get curvier, you get shorter. I see. So there's a shorter distance between A and B. Yeah. Um, so those are the discs between... And then there's the body of the vertebra themselves, the, the bonier part. Correct. Now, can that also start collapsing? And, Certainly. You know, and typically, uh, that happens later in life, typically, as people get osteoporosis. Which uh, is about 10 to 1 women to men. Is that accurate? Or is it 5 to 1? No, or? It's probably 10 to 1. Um, uh, heavy hormonal influence, but also... Uh, other factors. The big controllable factor is, uh, one of them is vitamin D, uh -huh. which is really critical for bone health. And I, I actually measure vitamin D levels on the patients that I operate on. So I can tell you with certainty that vitamin D deficiency is an absolute epidemic in this state. Yes. Well, uh, it's probably the country. In the country. Uh, so the lab values for normal are 30 to 70. And, but the bone gurus, the fellows that study this uh, extensively, think that the uh, more optimal values would be 50 to 90. Yeah. <clears throat> and if you don't take a supplement, you could very well be in the single digits or teens, maybe in the 20s. But or you stay out of sun. And, and, and if you, you got enough from sunlight, the dermatologist would 
yell at you about getting yeah. skin cancer. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm going to have some podcasts in both of this, but uh, there's two conditions that in which the, I believe the recommendations of one medical specialty have had tunnel vision, and they've looked just at their issue, and they've not looked at the broader, like something like an all-cause mortality, like they'll look at just heart attacks, so they won't look at all-cause mortality. And I know it drives the dermatologist crazy, but sunlight is so important, direct sunlight, and especially for our African-American uh, brothers and sisters. They need to get a lot of sun. I'm going to bring on some sun gurus myself, but I think the dermatologists have not looked at all-cause mortality. And the, the bone, bone health is just another aspect of health that have been ignored for the sake of skin cancer. But, but vitamin D is cheap and easy and... Um, that, that's the argument, but yeah. there are other things. Sunlight gives us other things. Right, so I'm not anti-sunlight, right? Right, 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 right. I just want to make this good. And this is a, a healthy argument. I think they've told us we can get it from a bottle or what have you. And I guess it's better from a bottle than not having it at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. We can all agree that we need good amounts of vitamin D to maintain our bone health. So you've got the bony part of the vertebra, and we've got this spongy disc between them. Now tell me, say, what is a slip disc? Do discs slip, or is that the, the term for a, a bulge or some other problem that with a disc? Typically, is not a, your, a word that we use in the profession, but yeah, most, I never hear most, you use it. Most people are referring to this condition we just spoke about earlier, the spondylolisthesis, mm. because one vertebral body has slid or slipped relative to the other. Ah, so it's not the disc; it's the bodies themselves are slipping. But they slide through the disc. That's where the translation ah. happens. You know, I have a cousin. This is a good time to talk about another story. I have a cousin. She's very, very dear to me. I was supposed to be the first cousin of my generation. I stayed in a little long. She came. So she she was actually the first cousin in my generation to be born. I've never heard the end of it. Um, but uh, poor thing. She's had some health issues. And her, her head was just kind of leaning forward a little more over the years. And no one said much of it. She got this real neck ache, and her head, I guess, was her chin was out like this, and her head was just always kind of slanting down and slanting forward. And she went to the doctor, and they took an X-ray. John, I think I showed it to you. Her spine had slipped so much in her neck that when they saw it, read her X-ray, they were saying, "Hey, come back next week." They called her at home and said, "Can you come in immediately?" <laughs> And don't get in a car wreck on the way. Because she was literally about to dislocate and literally fracture her neck. It was about ready to break because it had slipped so far in her neck. And I showed you that x-ray on my it's phone. It's really unusual in the cervical spine. It can give rise to a chin-on-chest deformity, which is a, which is a major problem to deal with surgically. Chin-on-chest. Uh, that makes sense. That makes sense. You've seen things like that. So obviously, keeping our bones strong, vitamin D, I assume exercise, weight bearing, all that stuff. So as we get older, other things can happen. I will say, Dr. Miles also took care of my daddy when he was alive. And my dad had a bunch of back problems. He had so many back problems. John told me he could have done a whole fellowship just on my dad's back. He had all these problems. So I... Uh, so I want to learn more about all these things that uh, that you do, John. So, so when these when these uh, vertebrae start coming closer together, they start compacting, maybe fractures and what happens and what have you. Um, 
and tell me if I'm correct, there are these big nerve roots that come out of the side, out of the spinal cord between the vertebrae, right? This is true. And they are called roots. And the word for root in Latin is where we get the word radical. Radicals actually get to the root of issues. And in fact, there's something called radiculopathy, which sounds to me in Greek like disease of a root. So tell me about radiculopathies. Radiculopathy uh, is something that we treat routinely. The model that I have here in my hand is the cervical spine. So the, the spinal column is a series of little uh, building blocks separated by intervertebral discs. Okay. And in the neck, um, well, just like throughout the spine, the nerve holes or the nerve foramen where the nerve roots exit, these holes are not particularly large to begin with. And if you grow a little bone spur or disc material into the nerve foramen, the nerve root loses the battle and frequently will uh, manifest as pain. And the pain from nerve root entrapment is what we call radiculopathy, which is typically characterized in the neck as pain under the scapula or subscapular pain. That's behind the shoulder blades? Behind the shoulder blades. You kind of feel like it's under your shoulder blade, typically. That's the way patients describe it. And the pain frequently will go down the arm, uh, sometimes even down into the hand, uh, and can be associated with other symptoms of nerve root dysfunction, such as numbness or tingling or, or weakness. And we look for certain patterns that, that fit uh, certain nerve roots. They, they, dip, they tend to have some classical patterns, which is confirmatory of our uh, clinical suspicions based on uh, our total evaluation of the patient, which starts with a good history and physical examination findings, imaging studies. We're all part of that. And there's a subset of these patients that we can, uh, that we can help surgically. So you've got to decompress. So it's a tight spot. It gets too tight. This nerve root gets pinched, gets damaged, injured. So if you have a, a tight nerve, what, what can you do? Well, the only thing that you can do anatomically to change that is surgery. Typically, we don't start with that. We usually start with medications and injections to see if we can calm it down a little bit. But the end game is surgery for these conditions. Now, I see things on TV for these tables, these inversion tables you hang by your feet. Uh, mm -hmm. certainly hang and that, by gives, your, that can give some temporary relief. That can give some temporary relief. So that could, could maybe, if you're doing it right and you're strong enough and you're not going to get a, you don't have an aneurysm in your brain. that You're, gonna, you're not going to have a stroke. You're not going to have a stroke yeah. hanging upside down for a while. So there is that. There's an act. That's a real thing. You're saying inversion tables and whatnot. It is. I'm, I'm not sure how practical it is, but uh, the front of the line is typically injections, and sometimes you get lucky, and these injections work for quite a while. And those will reduce the swelling and give it more room. No, they don't change no. the anatomy at all. They're ah. just they're just really potent anti-inflammatories. They just reduce symptoms. Uh, but that's that's valuable. If the patient doesn't have a deficit or some uh, functional deficit, then uh, if we can get rid of the pain, um, that's not a bad deal. You give lots of injections in the office? We, we don't do them in the office, uh, particularly in the neck. We need to use uh, image guidance with x-ray because we don't want to poke the spinal cord. 
So we use a little dye, and one of my colleagues will do this. I don't do these myself. Because you have a specialist in your office that's really good at this. We have several, actually. Several. Uh, yeah, we have uh, typically some radiologists will do this, or we'll have uh, we have a pain management physician who does a lot of injections. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we order these many, many times a day. Gotcha. And you can give real relief with that. They do. Fantastic. Now, let's say it's really, really pinched and you have to do surgery. How do you open up that space to give that nerve room? The way we do this is we remove the central part of the disc all the way back to the canal, and we trim out the disc and the bone spurs that are putting pressure on the nerve roots. And then we establish normal height because these discs are always collapsed. Okay. And then we jack them back up to their normal height, which directly opens up the neural foramen. Is that a fusion? Well, this is the fork in the road. The traditional option is a cervical fusion where you put a bone plug in the disc space and then typically a plate and screw construct on the front, and you get the bones to grow together, which works very well for pain control, but it does give you a stiff segment through there. So now you can't move that spot, so now there's more stress on the next vertebra up and down. This is true. This is true. So... Um, in the last 20 years, there's been a, a fairly significant push towards motion-sparing alternatives, which are disc replacements. So the same decompression is performed, but then instead of putting the bone plug and the plate and screw in the disc space, we insert a little uh, metal plastic device that keeps that segment mobile. Well, I was going to get to this at the end of the talk, but let's talk about it right now because I just love this. And I know people come to you from far and wide to do this because you're one of the busiest, most experienced surgeons in the world doing this. So tell me. So in, so what you do is you've got this compressed disc between the vertebrae, compressing that poor nerves, causing other symptoms. You then can pull apart. I think it's called distract. You can then distract, distract. the vertebrae. So you make a little extra space. Correct. And then you take out that the whole old disc, that fibrotic, yes. worn out tire there. Take it out, and then okay. we go back and trim out the bone. There's almost always bone spurs as well that we trim out. So you've got special little grinders and tools, little tools. in there. Mm-hmm. And you want somebody that does this all the time like you. This isn't just so you've got the expertise to go in there and make a new perfect space, I guess. Correct. That okay. is what we do. And there's lots of us that do that. Um, and it's the same decompression for the fusion as for the disc replacement. The disc replacement uh, is becoming the new gold standard. It's been slower than I had hoped uh, to catch on. Our uh, institutions are fairly hidebound in that regard, but every study that's been done comparing cervical disc replacement to fusion has shown equivalence or superiority of the disc replacement. What's what's this disc replacement made of? There are several designs that are on the market now. Uh, the one that I am currently using is made out of um, three parts. There, there's a shell on the upper and lower end that's made out of a plastic material called PEAK, polyethylether ketone, which is an inert plastic that's been around in orthopedics for a long time. And it's strong as hell. Very strong, and it has good, uh, very good surface characteristics. It's highly polished and very little wear debris with it. Uh, it has a titanium mesh coating on the surface for bony ingrowth. It feels like fine grit sandpaper, 
there's some little mechanical teeth that dig into the bone and this uh, mesh coating allows for quick ingrowth of bone into the, the mesh coating. Kind of, there's an interface there. Of there's connection. an interface. Okay. And then the central core is made out of a zirconium ceramic that is, uh, again, high um, uh, surface uh, smoothness. So you that have, sounds stiff. Doesn't sound very springy. There is no spring at all. Uh, it's ah. just it's just motion, um, but that's that's really quite adequate. Again, so most most of the spring in the in the spine actually comes from the shape of the curve. Ah, so you've got this just kind of a, you describe it sounds like it sounds like a sandwich, and between those two, between the zirconium and the peak, is there's this, movement. There's movement. So it wibble wobbles. It can rotate. Uh, it can flex, extend, lateral bend, um, and it's not a lot of movement. It's about ten degrees. Well, you don't need much. It's not moving you that don't much need anyway. Much. <clears throat> and so, a lot of patients will ask if these things are going to last last a lifetime. And the answer is, we don't have thirty-year clinical data in patients, but we do have very good mechanical testing data from the FDA studies. And we believe that they will last a lifetime because the loading circumstances appear to be below what we call the, the endurance limit. In other words, we're just not doing enough to the device to wear it out. Gotcha. And it's not a surprise result because the circumstances are so much more favorable in the cervical spine than, say, in the uh, knee or the hip, where the models, the mechanical testing models, fairly accurately predict the failure of those devices when they occur. Mm -hmm. um, but if you think about the circumstances in the cervical spine, the, the contact stress is way less than in the hip or the knee. The, right. arc, the arc of movement is way less, 5 or 10 degrees versus 100. And the number of cycles in a lifetime is much less. It reminds me of a car commercial. Show you, I think it was Mercedes where they have this machine opening the door and closing the door. Slam, open, slam. So you can do a million tests. You just and we have that. machines that and do it. you've done that. And the machines do it. And when you don't stress it that much, which in the neck we really don't. Um, is that the weight of the head? You don't have the weight of the body there. And it's right. just not that much. Uh, you don't have the, the, the impact effect of ambulation. So when you're walking or moving quickly, you're transiently really loading these things up. When you have contact stresses across these joints where the muscles are acting across the joint also, you just don't have that in the neck. So how many years ago was the first one you really did? When did you start getting really doing this routinely? Well, I've, I've been doing it for 20 years, but 20 years mm -hmm. ago, I was in, it was in studies, um, clinical you, studies. So you had, you had access to pre-release, you know, in, in, in I don't forget what you call it, you know, it was, or it was in the study. So 20 years ago, you said you started doing yeah, this? COG has been involved in several clinical trials. Uh, one of the early discs was the Brian disc. And, we were involved in the ProDIS study and the PCM study, and I was involved in the Charité lumbar study. So you've been doing this personally for 20 years? Correct. And what's the So you have patients that have had these in their bodies for 20 years? That would be true. And, you, and you're seeing durability? They're uh, durable. I have seen durability. You know, I've, I've had to revise very few of these devices over the years. Now, do you sometimes have to do more than one level? You do just not just well, the between current, two vertebrae. I assume uh, sometimes current, you do two. The current insurance limitations are are typically at two levels, um, and that 
has transpired, uh, as you're aware, back in the day, insurance companies didn't dictate how we practice nearly as much as they do today. And I want to tell you something. I hate insurance companies, so say anything you want. So it used to be that if, a di- if advice was FDA approved, that a physician or surgeon could use it in any way that they thought was appropriate. Right. That's no longer the case. Which would seem appropriate. That would seem appropriate, but that's right. no longer the case. So today, uh, the insurance companies tend to follow FDA guidelines, which were never intended to dictate how we practice medicine, but that's how they're used now. So unless a device has an FDA approval for two levels, most insurance companies will not pay for it. Ah, so uh, you haven't proven it's good yeah. for three, therefore, right. even though it's good for one. And, so they'll, and they also tend to push back if you do a disc replacement adjacent to a prior fusion. We tend to get pushback still. But nonetheless, it's still better than it was even five years ago when we only could do one level typically. Okay. But now we can do two levels. And for the mo- even if a patient has three or four level disease, usually two of them are worse than the others. Okay. And I'll lay the options out to a patient and explain that we could do a multi-level fusion or we could just treat uh, the two worst ones with disc replacement surgery. And almost invariably, people select the motion sparing alternative. There are really just two major caveats to disc replacement surgery. Uh, So one is instability on flexion extension films, which is that condition that we just, that word we used earlier, spondylolisthesis. Okay. So if there's a slippage or a spondylolisthesis, that's a contraindication to disc replacement surgery. The other contraindication would be advanced facet arthritis in these little stabilizer joints on the backside. So at every motion segment in the, in the spine, there are actually three joints. There's the big disc on the front, okay. and then there are the pair of these facet joints on the back. So let's describe the spine. We have this stack of vertebral bodies up and down, almost like a, you know, a multi-segmented, almost like a snake with multiple segments. But then off the back, there's these wings that stick back. There's two that go to the side and back, and one that goes straight back, kind of like the stegosaurus. Correct. And these facet joints are kind of between these the, the back, they're, they're, they're the, there's two of them in the back where the two wings below kind of contact the wings above. I know that's not a perfect uh, description. That's true. So the, the transverse processes go off to the side. Okay. And then the spinous processes in the midline. And these are all muscular attachment points. Okay. And these are the levers that the muscles use to act ah, on the spine. Makes sense. Yeah. So these facets are stabilizer joints, and they just they add stability. Uh, they, they limit movement. Uh, but we need to have good functioning facets to support a disc replacement. The disc replacement does a great job of replacing the disc, but it does nothing for these facets. So if a patient has very arthritic facet joints, that is a relative contraindication to disc replacement surgery. Uh. And unfortunately, we haven't really defined how much is too much. I do obtain a CT scan uh, on patients that I'm taking to the operating room to better evaluate these facets because you can see them a lot better on CT than you can on MR or plain radiogram. Ah. Uh, and I have, I just use my best judgment and talk to the patient about that uh, based on the condition of their facets. But uh, the spondylolisthesis, in my mind, is an absolute contraindication. And the facet arthropathy is a relative uh, contraindication, but um, that's the bugaboo. 
So you have to very carefully evaluate these patients before you take them to the OR, is what you're telling me. Correct. So you have to choose your patients very, very carefully because we want the best outcomes. That makes a lot of sense. Now, what is cauda equina? So that means horse's tail. So the cauda equina, the, 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 spinal, the spinal cord terminates about the L1, L2 segment. So your spinal cord doesn't go all the way down. It goes kind of through your middle back, and then it stops. Then it stops, and then it terminates in what we call the cauda equina, or the horse's tail. So in the lumbar spine, throughout most of the lumbar spine, there is no cord. It is a uh, nerve, it's a sac with uh, nerve rootlets in it. So it's, just, so it's like, a, like, a, like a mop of, of, of uh, nerves nerve coming Nerve rootlets down. that coalesce at each segment to become nerve roots. Some of these fibers coalesce, and then they exit as nerve roots. So what can go wrong there? There's, there's like in, in I, I read that in elderly people you can have a, a disease of the cauda equina. Does this refer well, to Well, cauda equina syndrome is yes. What is that, please? Is is where you have a severe compression of the nerve roots. It can occur at any level, and in the lumbar spine, and the patient manifests classically with uh, loss of bowel or bladder function, but but also typically deficits as well, strength, motor, and sensory deficits. As so well. if an old older person has weak legs or they're falling down, they need to be properly evaluated, and they may have tight. Now, is this, once again, just tightness of the roots? Is this a radiculopathy? Is there something more Well, radiculopathy that? is much, much, much more common, and that is pressure on a nerve root that has pain down the leg. Cauterquine right. syndrome is actually a very rare condition, and typically impacts younger people when it does occur and it, it is not common in, in the least bit but okay. it, but it is a medical emergency or a surgical emergency and uh the sooner you can get those people decompressed the the, the quicker they respond what the, how do you decompress i, I guess well it's 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 typically due to a very large herniated disc where some of the nuclear material has extruded back into the canal and the, and the canal is pretty well obliterated. There's really no space. And so you have to move the nerve sac out of the way and, and remove that fragment, the offending fragment. So you're in the central nervous system there. You're in the spinal cord area then. That's correct, yeah. Well, nerve roots. It's, in the nerve roots. Yeah. But it's a severe central stenosis due to a very large herniation is the typical uh, way that we see that. And, Again, it's a rare condition. Now, are there any of the common back problems that you take care of, John, that I have not addressed yet? Are there any things that you, you see commonly that people should, that my audience should know about that, that I haven't mentioned yet? I don't think so. Um, this normal degenerative disc disease, uh, everybody has as we age, and these people don't need surgery for the most part. Uh, mm -hmm. That's just not, that's not a, a, what we call an indication for surgery. In medical school, we have a, this real fun uh, activity. It's called Stump the Professor, where uh, you put, it's a chance for the students to get back at the, uh, generally guys, but they can be gals, and generally the gray-haired people who are the, the chairman and the department heads and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it's, a, it's a common thing where uh, 
we'll put the professors up there and we'll give them a case that's very difficult and see if they can figure it out. In fact, New England Journal of Medicine has this all, it's an actual uh, series. They have one every month on, uh, on you know, guess the, guess the problems. And I saw this patient, I'll never forget it. Um, I was a medical student. I'm gonna see if you can tell me the diagnosis, John. He was, um, let's say late middle-aged, normal weight, basically healthy uh, African-American gentleman. He'd been having some lower back pain, you know, nothing to write home about. And then suddenly he was going about his normal activities and he just collapsed. His legs gave out and he collapsed and they brought him to the hospital and his legs were really weak and there was something wrong. So they admitted him to the hospital and they were doing all these tests and he had been admitted that night, so we were doing morning rounds, happened to be on internal medicine rotation, I believe. And so all of us, you know, a dozen of us are around this guy's bedside. The attending is, is uh, presenting the case, was the residents presenting the case and the attending's giving feedback. And usually the, 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 the attending will say, well, I think it says right in front of the patient. But they, he didn't say anything. So he said, thank you very much, sir. And we all walked out of the room, went out to the hallway where we were down the hall, out of earshot. What do you think the diagnosis was? Well, it's the first thing that I would want to rule out is what we call cervical spondylotic myelopathy. So That's a big one. That's a lot of words. But uh, it classic or pure myelopathy, which is where the spinal cord is being compressed in the neck, um, those patients in, a, in some cases will not have pain whatsoever. They just, their legs won't work. And they'll just give out on And they'll not be able to walk. And there's some physical exam findings that you'd look for, but in a classic case, the patient has no pain whatsoever and they just can't walk. They call it ataxia. Interesting. Now, I didn't mean to put you on the spot right now, and I'm not giving you maybe enough of the history, but I'm bringing up this story to give people the, hopefully people appreciate how hard diagnosis can be and how important it is to have the patient in front of you, to take the time to listen to them, take the time to examine them, take the time to do the right tests and whatnot, and then have the, the humanity not to not to hit them with a, with something terrible and figure out how you're going to tell them with, about the diagnosis but i'll never forget this we go down the hall and as a medical student i'm thinking primary spine i'm thinking all these other things and the attending says i think he has prostate cancer and it was like if you said it was a space alien colony in his, in his spine, I would have thought that about the same likelihood of prostate cancer. But he was an otherwise healthy guy. He was a black guy, and they don't get enough sun. They typically have low vitamin D, like you said, and they have a high rate of prostate cancer, maybe due to low vitamin D. And prostate cancer likes to metastasize to the bone, the bone like breast cancer does. That's true. And I was blown away. I was, my jaw hit the floor. I had my sh little short white coat, brand new, and my brand new stethoscope and knee hammer and ophthalmoscope. You know, I was this brand new medical student. 
and I was just gobsmacked. Prostate cancer, and then they got the markers and the alkphos. These things, when bone gets eaten up by cancer, it it lets out these various chemicals you can measure. And wouldn't you know, it was prostate cancer manifesting as a spine issue, which I see a couple of times a year. Yeah, yes, I want people to know the body is so complicated and interconnected that that having a an experienced doctor who's been around the block who's done training in internal medicine and general surgery and mechanics and physics and fellowship i mean you, it all comes together and what i'm doing is i'm making a plug for experienced doctors still running the show and not having necessarily physician extenders doing all the basic medical care um you know, if you have a basic run-of-the-mill problem, maybe a basic run-of-the-mill diagnosis will do it. But there are still these cases that are not that uncommon where somebody has something completely out of the blue, a complete curveball, something you'd never expect, left field that comes at you, and it takes an experienced doctor to be able to make the diagnosis. So I wasn't trying to put you on the spot, John. I was trying to make a point how difficult diagnosis can be and how important an accurate diagnosis is for the health of our patients. Very true. And you see, must see a whole bunch of, uh, one thing masquerading is another, and we're dealing with older folks that you and I, we're, we're both almost the same age, you and I, and as a, we get older, I hope there's good young doctors who are experienced enough to help us through our uh, problems, which may not be so easy to diagnose. Um, I'm thinking, is there anything else that I, is, is there anything else you would like to mention about uh, about spine surgery that uh, you'd like the general public to know? I think we covered the waterfront. Um, yeah, I think, I think we, we hit the high points. And we could talk about it for months, obviously. But... Obviously, you've spent a whole lifetime learning how to do this. Yeah. And uh, probably the biggest change that happened in my career was the advent of these motion-sparing alternatives. And that's become a big part of my practice. Yeah, because I want to say that people are very, very happy, uh, and I know you're you're very busy doing that. Well, I know I had one more question. This spine, the the cervical or the neck portion of the spine, is right in the middle of the neck. <laughs> it is. Seems it's a truism, but it, it's so important. It's right in the middle of the neck. It's surrounded by the rest of the neck, your trachea, your blood vessels, your, yeah, all some, these nerves and arteries. How do you get there, John? So how somewhat, do you know where to go? It's somewhat shocking to patients how really easy it is to get there. Um, we make a paracentral incision on the front side of the neck. The only thing we incise is really the skin. After that, we're is just... Is it a, a horizontal incision on the neck it or is, vertical? We go horizontal because uh, cosmetically that's much more appealing. Okay. And we try to put it in a skin fold. Uh-huh. And then we really just mostly bluntly dissect, and we push the trachea and the esophagus out of the way. And the blood loss is typically trivial. We make up a number, and we don't cut any muscles. And you just push things we away. We just push things away. So you're right. able to separate the breathing tube and the esophagus. Well, and we, these we move them together. arteries. Yeah, we, the, the carotid sheath, you work around that, and you're, you're looking at some big vessels, but we don't into them and we just push them out of the way and we have special specialized retractors and we're looking right at the front of it 
Dorothea, so you go suffer these disc replacements. You're going through the front of and the and the fusions. Just uh, most effusions we do on the front side as well. So to tell me just a little bit more about fusions. I, as a medical student, I remember being in there. And they would take a piece of bone out of the hip. They'd have this right typically this saw, and they would saw a, a, a slice of hip out. Typically, we're using there. synthetics these days. So not I haven't alive. actually. I have not actually taken a hunk of bone off somebody's pelvis uh, in since I've been in practice because I want patients to like me. And, and that was that hurt most afterwards. Yeah. That hurt the most. And I recall they will not like you for doing that to them. <laughs> so you synthetic is that cadaver or an absolute synthetic? Uh, uh, both. Both. There's several. There's a myriad options available now. Now I heard something about cages. These these these. Frequently objects we use, they put uh, in there to hold this the the uh, frequently we apart. use synthetic spacers frequently made out of a substance called peak. That, okay, the peak know, again. Peak. Uh, there are other materials. Titanium mesh uh, is one of them that's popular. But uh, then we use it as they're usually hollow. We pack them with uh, some type of a bone graft. Okay. And they work very nicely um, for patients that need a fusion. Now, do you ever do? I think it's called a kyphope. Was it kyphoplasty, or where you can you can puff the the vertebral body back up? Is there something you can inject? What's that called? I, you're you're uh, the doctor. You're so the that that surgeon. procedure uh, was very um, popular, probably 15 years ago. Hi, here it is. I wrote down kyphoplasty. Yeah, kyphoplasty. I actually did the first kyphoplasty in the state of Missouri. Ha! Um, How fantastic. And I think for the right patient, it probably does. Uh, it probably is a reasonable option. The natural history of the condition of it, that procedure is used to treat a compression fracture, typically in an older lady. Right. The natural history is that they heal on their own. And that's kind of the knock on the procedures that if you just would have waited a few weeks, they heal up anyway. But doesn't it heal compressed, though? There doesn't it, it can't does, you give them it, more height? It does. The, the, that part of it has been more elusive. Uh, to get much height um, is, is difficult. Uh, if you catch some fresh fractures that uh, you're pretty aggressive with the balloons to blow them up, uh, if you catch them early, you, you can restore some height. But for the most part, you're really just creating a void in the bone to put the bone cement in. And, and the height part has been more elusive. I see. I see. Very interesting. Well then, well, well, John, I want to thank you for coming and, and spending time with us. I want to say you're one of the best spine surgeons in the world, and it's it's a real pleasure to have you as a colleague, a locker mate, and as a, a fellow physician here at Boone Hospital. Um, you have a great group. Or you've taken great care of me and my family over the years, and I wish you uh, continued success and continued uh uh, advancement, and, and I hope you were able to help people uh, for many, many years to come. Well, thank you, Gail. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure.